You are listening to UBC Waco Podcast. <laughs> are you recording? Yeah. Oh, okay. We can use that as just a scratch track for now. Good morning. Uh, just to recap last week, thank you to everybody who offered to, to help my family. Um, one of the great things about being here is uh, we have on staff a lot of talent, and so... Um, Let's see, it was Tuesday last week. My wife came home. I don't know if I get my timeline right. I said, I can't smell, can't taste. Um, and she tested positive for COVID. She's vaccinated. That was really the only side effect aside from a bit of fatigue. We are blessed in that we have a garage apartment she was able to quarantine in. At the same time, um, we have two foster children and our daycare was shut down because so many teachers were sick. And, um, you know, some people are, are gifted in that they have been called to care for little children. Um, some people are not. And so I'm more on the end of the spectrum where that was kind of a preview of hell to be with them for 24 hours a day, every day for 10 days without any help and do all the bad fights, showers, et cetera. Uh, But we made it. And I want to say thank you so much. And I especially want to say thank you to Taylor, who on Tuesday, I can just say, Taylor, I can't do this. I can't legally come to church and not supervise these foster children. So could you preach? And she does it. And she does such a good job. Um, How great is that? So thank you, Taylor. You're just my favorite. Okay. I want to talk about the James Bible verses, um, and to intro that, I want to tell you that Taylor and I do a podcast under the umbrella of UBC called It Was Either This Or, and um, one of the recurring conversations we have is about cancel culture. Um, It's an interesting phenomenon to reckon with in a faith tradition that both has judgment and grace, accountability and and redemption, Um, but having grown up as an evangelical, I am well-versed in cancel culture. Um, you know, I remember my, my parents picketing an adult bookstore that moved into our small town neighborhood as a child. I remember not reading Harry Potter for years because I don't want to catch a demon. I remember uh, protesting the Teletubbies because I didn't want Pinky Winky to make me gay. Um, I remember getting a steady stream of businesses that James Dobson would have me oppose because they were complicit in some kind of um, shenanigans. And so I, I understand this. People get canceled for all kinds of reasons. Uh, Louis C.K. for inappropriate sexual behavior. Ellen DeGeneres for being a terrible boss. Um, Chris Pratt for having the wrong political beliefs and attending the wrong church. Canceling, though, I think has become so common, I sometimes wonder if it's, it's losing its potency. Take Jimmy Fallon. I didn't even know this story. In the beginning of the pandemic, uh, like March, June, 2020, somewhere in there, Videos from him and SNL, so my lifetime, not hidden, obscure videos of him on SNL resurfaced of him impersonating Chris Rock in blackface. And um, he apologized for this and whatnot, and, and say what you want about the moment, it didn't affect NBC, who like four months after that gave him a five-year contract extension on The Tonight Show. Um, then there is Kanye West, who has to be one of the most potent cocktails of cognitive dissonance in American history. Uh, as one of the most accomplished rappers of the 21st century, West stunned fans when in 2016 he publicly expressed support for President Trump. But the hammer really fell him on in 2018. West did an interview with TMZ, and in it he said that slavery was a choice. Um, and no, no matter what kind of uh, nuance or context you might want to place in, the statement is just horrible and it's patently false. So Kanye was canceled for a month. Then he released his album Ye, which soared to number one on the charts in the U.S., Canada, Australia, New Zealand, Switzerland, all of those record sales, really deemed the canceling sort of moot in my mind, kind of ineffective. But if there is a lesson to be learned from from Kanye's episode, it is this. The fastest track to getting canceled is by what you say um, and speak out of your mouth. Say something dumb. 
I think one of the most painful cancelings for me to watch unfold was that of J.K. Rowling because her work has meant so much to me. Rowling, who really has a pretty spotless record of support of the LGBTQ community, turned heads the wrong way when around the same time the, the story about Fallon broke, she released a series of tweets that rendered her a TERF, and I'm always catching up on terms I had to learn. This is trans-exclusionary radical feminist. She took the nuanced position of being for women, but not for trans women, and um, she, she really took a beating for it. Uh, cancel culture, I should say, isn't always liberals being upset with conservatives either. It cuts both ways. In 2003, at a show in London, Natalie Maines, who was the lead singer of the then Dixie Chicks, uh, publicly criticized President George W. Bush and the Allied attack on Iraq. It turns out that Chicks fans um, were comprised mostly of right-leaning, war-supporting country music fans in the U.S., and they did not take kindly to what she said. Or there's Roseanne Barr, who really excited fans when it, uh, they, they announced the news that her show, Roseanne, would turn, return to ABC after almost 20 years. But the excitement was short-lived because two months after being on the air, she posted a racist, racist tweet about Valerie Jarrett, the senior advisor of President Obama. Hours later, Disney canceled Roseanne before bringing back the Connors without her. It is our words that can condemn us unequivocally and quickly. And why is that? I suspect it's because intuitively I'll know that Jesus is right when he in Luke 6.45 said that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Words we know represent something. They are representative of a belief or a disposition or an energy, and, and those things they can shape a world. I was trying to think about the instances in which I heard words spoken that had the most impact on me. This first story, I suspect many of you as recovering, maybe current, maybe former evangelicals, maybe post-evangelicals, might have also been exposed to. I was a sophomore in college, and I was attending a, a chapel service, and that day we were uh, uh, going to hear from uh, our keynote, who was um, social justice bad boy sociologist Tony Campolo. Tony, who I really do admire, um, was, uh, has given his life to supporting Compassion International. He speaks about it in most venues that he speaks. And as a polemical trick in the middle of his child support advocacy, uh, Tony sets up the following. He, he spends a few minutes providing the devastating statistics on global poverty and, and hunger, and then he proceeds to, without condemning anyone in particular, but everyone in general, um, condemn us for our, our complicit um, participation in affluence, which I understand there's real poverty in America, but for my mostly affluent northern Minnesota private school, the point was pretty uncontested. Then after redirecting our attention with a few remarks about the current state of the world, Tony drops an expletive. And, um, and not the safe for some context kind of expletive, like my personal favorite A, dollar sign, dollar sign, or H-E double hockey sticks. Um, or even the middle grade expletives, like female canine, or the adjective that describes something no longer in its original form. Tony came to play. Uh, I've heard that in some contexts, Tony even drops the F-bomb. In my story on that cool spring morning in 2002, he used the lethal description for poop, if you know what I mean. Tony then proceeded to talk about some other things, but those other things were no longer the point of the talk. They were window dressing. Tony was letting the offensive language marinate among the offended. Ears were ringing. It worked. There was an audible shuffle in the room. Looks were being thrown at the, the uh, university chaplain, and then, and then the, the university president President, were there any regents in the room, we wondered? Were there any parents in the room, we wondered? 
a man just said crap on a Christian stage. Well, we all played right into Tony's hand because his next words cut us. They devastated us. He said, and you care more about the fact that I just said crap, winky, winky face, than, I, than the fact that there are 20 million children starving in the world. And he was right. And instantly we knew we were condemned for it. Wow, those were powerful words. Uh, the most salient stories about words aren't always condemning. Nadia Boltz has a preaching rule. She says she only shares her own stories. I try and more or less abide by this. Um, but I want to do something a bit unconventional. I want to share not just a story from another preacher, but I'm actually going to let him tell it in the form of an audio clip. Um, Tom Long is the preaching pastor or the preaching professor at uh, Candler School of Theology, which is part of Emory, I think in Atlanta. And um, he was at Calvin College a few years ago, and he shared this in a sermon. Listen to this. One of the last times that I was in Michigan, about a year and a half ago, I was invited here by the worship and education committees of a local Presbyterian church. It was a good idea on paper. What they wanted me to do was to conduct an educational, intergenerational worship service. Those are always good on paper. It was going to be held in the fellowship hall of the church, and instead of being seated in rows of chairs or pews, Families were going to be gathered together at tables. At each table, there would be flour and yeast and and water. And the plan called for families to share their spiritual experiences while they made dough for communion bread. When the dough was all made, the bread would be taken to the church kitchen and baked. And while the delightful aroma of freshly baked bread was supposed to permeate the fellowship hall, I was to preach an intergenerational sermon that would set all of this in theological context as we moved to the Lord's Supper. It was a good idea on paper. It was chaos. Flour quickly filled the room as children threw handfuls of it across tables. Soggy balls of dough hit me all over my new suit. Something happened to the ovens in the kitchen. It took over an hour and a half to bake that bread. Everything I could think to say was being stretched out in that sermon. Chairs were collapsing. Children were screaming with weariness and anger. Families were breaking up all around the room. It was a disaster. And at the end of the service, the script called for me to pronounce the benediction by saying, the peace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. I was too weary and irritated to ad-lib anything on my feet, so I simply said it according to the script. Over the chaos and cacophony, I said, The peace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. And then a little voice, was it a child or was it an angel, in the back of the room said, It already is. Through the chaos and the cacophony, The peace of God as a gift, it already is. My favorite psalm is Psalm 8, mostly for the creation imagery. But before the psalmist gets there in verse 2, the psalmist says, To the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemy to silence the foe and the avenger. Like so many pieces of early American conventional wisdom, they came to us in the King James Version, that was the NIV, but you may know it as this, out of the mouths of babes, it already is. 
one of the reasons we can be so enamored by the way that, chil- that children speak about the world is because they haven't been taught or they haven't mastered the art of mincing words. Um, now I'm going to tell you a story in which I do use one of those medium expletives, and I am going to use it at the punchline. If you would like to provide your own earmuffs, or perhaps the earmuffs for a young one around you, I'll give a long, dramatic pause with a wink so you know the punchline is coming, okay? Uh, when David Crowder was still our worship pastor, he would travel the seven seas and the four corners of the earth, and he would come back with just great stories. One morning, the band was at a very large church, uh, thousands, and I'm not going to give you more details because some of you might figure out where. Thousands of people there that morning, and they were, they were, the liturgy called for a dedication of children. Well, in these big churches, the whole stage, which was much bigger than this, was lined from one end to the other with families. And so uh, the pastor began interviewing them, not unlike Taylor did with our kindergarten commission a few weeks ago. And um, I don't know if you know this, but, but children are really are, are low-hanging entertainment fruit. Um, the, it's like watching an episode of kids say the darndest thing. The place was rolling. The pastor gets to one of the last families who, in this interview, we'll call this little girl Susie. He asks her about her little brother being dedicated. She says something sweet about her little brother, who we'll call Johnny. And then, uh, this is the punchline, wink, wink. Uh, the pastor then asks, or says to Susie, you look beautiful today. And uh, Susie says, well, thank you. And the pastor says, I love that dress you have on today. And Susie, without missing a beat, says, well, that's good because my mom says it's a bitch to iron. Uh, It took Susie's mom a long time to find the courage to come back to church. Uh, Now, why is that story funny? Because words matter, and we understand that that word out of that mouth in that context is potent. And why might I get an email about using that sermon illustration tomorrow? Because we know that words matter, and we understand that word out of my mouth in this venue is potent. I don't have to convince you of this, though. We memorize quotes. We put them on T-shirts. We, um, we canonize the best words of our leaders. We put them on post-motivational cat posters. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself, said FDR. Give me liberty or give me death, said Patrick Henry. Ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country, said JFK. Anne Frank was a great girl. Hopefully she would have been a believer, Justin Bieber. (laughs) James is, I think, the New Testament cousin of Proverbs. It's full of conventional wisdom. Um, And you kind of get this, this rapid fire of images that he offers in describing the power of the tongue. It's like a rudder on a small ship. It's it's like uh, the, the bit in the mouth of a horse that can steer the whole body. It's this image of brackish waters mixing with a pure spring. It's like fire. A few weeks ago, I preached on Song of Solomon, and for better or worse, most of that sermon was about sex, and then I turned it at the end to say, but what could this, like any of the sacraments, an outward symbol of an inward reality, suggest to us about the theological nature of our lives? And I think the same can be said about words. I think of Wittgenstein and some of the other philosophers who pointed out that words are symbols. In our tradition, behind James's wisdom, we have a story in which God creates, and how does God create? God spoke things into existence. The Latin term is ex nihilo. It means literally out of nothing. God spoke, and the universe unfurled before God. And we trade in that same currency of creative power today when we speak. Slow down to think about that. The same speech act that uttered the scientific processes of osmosis and general relativity and cell regeneration is one and the same that makes it possible for us to say things like broski and canoodle and shizzle and fortuitous. If you recall in the story of creation, you remember almost immediately after God is done creating, God hands the baton to Adam 
and gives him the assignment of naming the animals. And for those that know their Hebrew traditions well, this is potent with theological suggestion because their verb for naming things is not merely assigning monikers. The word devar means to give essence to something. If I can borrow from the philosophers, it is to assign ontological status. It is a verb that takes seriously the potent power of words. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Jesus knew this. There's something more than just what's being uttered. So James, drawing on the long line of Hebrew wisdom before him, all the way back to Joshua, speaking to the Israelites in Deuteronomy, says, from the same mouth come blessing and curse. Every day, you and I wake up and we enter the world with the creative power to save lives or destroy them. Um, I'm going to give you a few images of both of these in conclusion. On our third or fourth date in high school, Lindsay and I went to the theater to see You've Got Mail. Um, I love that movie just as much now as I did the first time I saw it then. I think it's aged well, um, so much so that I've decided that the few Christmas scenes in the movie are enough to put it in my seasonal holiday rotation so I can watch it every year. Um, I think we like the reason we like that movie, if you do, is, is the same reason that we like Aaron Sorkin's writing or the Gilmore Girls. I think Nora Ephron is a, a creative writing genius. Um, these dialogues, yes, they have beat, but uh, they're written by wordsmiths who, who can infuse the magnificent into the, into the seemingly mundane. You've got mail is also interesting because it came to us at a time when the internet was brand new, and it's a story, if you don't know, about two people who fall in love with each other, but their identities are veiled because they fall in love with each other online without pictures or their real names. And so in this process, Meg, Ryan, Meg Ryan plays Kathleen Kelly, says this to give you an example of a quote. The odd thing about this form of communication is that it is more likely to, you're more likely to talk about nothing than something, but I just want to say to you that all this nothing has meant to me more to me than so many somethings. That is an experience with the power of words. But the movie also explains that words can cut us. If you don't know the story, Joe Fox, Tom Hanks, owns a Barnes & Noble-ish book chain moving into a New York neighborhood that threatens to put out Kathleen Kelly's, Meg Ryan's, fabled-ish bookstore. And uh, unbeknownst to both of them, while they are business enemies behind the veil of the internet, they have fallen in love with one another. And the montage I'm going to show you, I've created it's two different scenes. It's Kathleen Kelly confessing to Joe Fox through email that she's never able to give the zinger she wants to when she uh, wants to. And then I'm going to fast forward to the moment when they meet and Tom Hanks figures out that this is who he's been talking to, his business enemy, but she doesn't. And then she gets that moment where she finally gets to draw on the words that she wants to. Let's watch this. Do you ever feel you become the worst version of yourself? That a Pandora's box of all the secret, hateful parts, your arrogance, your spite, your condescension has sprung open. Someone provokes you, and instead of just smiling and moving on, you zing them. Hello, it's Mr. Nasty. I'm sure you have no idea what I'm talking about. No, I know what you mean, and I'm completely jealous. What happens to me when I'm provoked is that I get tongue-tied. My mind goes blank. Then, then I spend all night tossing and turning, trying to figure out what I should have said. What should I have said, for example, to the bottom 
dweller. Recently belittled my existence. Nothing. Nothing. Even now. Even now, days later, I can't figure it out. Wouldn't it be wonderful if I could pass all my zingers to you, and then I would never behave badly, and you could behave badly all the time, and we'd both be happy. But then, on the other hand, I must warn you that when you finally have the pleasure of saying the thing you mean to say at the moment you mean to say it, remorse inevitably follows. You know what that hanky reminds me of? Mm. First day I met you. First day you lied to me. I didn't lie to you. You did too. No, I didn't. Yes, you did. I did not. You did, too. I did you not. You did, too. I did you not. Did, you did, too. I thought all that Fox stuff was so charming. F-O-X. Well, I didn't lie about it. Joe? Just call me Joe? Sure. As if you were one of those stupid 22-year-old girls with no last name. Hi, I'm Kimberly. Hi, I'm Janice. Don't they know you're supposed to have a last name? It's like they're an entire generation of cocktail waitresses. Look. I am not a 22-year-old cocktail waitress. That is not what I meant. And when I said the thing about the prize club and the cans of olive oil, well, that's not what I meant. Oh, you poor, sad multimillionaire. I feel so sorry for you. Take a wild guess that that's not him either. So who is he, I wonder? Certainly not, I gather, the world's greatest living expert on Julius and Ethel Rosenberg but somebody else entirely different. Will you be mean to him, too? No, I will not. Because the man who is coming here tonight is completely unlike you. The man who is coming here tonight is kind and funny. He's got the most wonderful sense of humor. But he's not here. Well, if he's not here, he has a reason, because there is not a cruel or careless bone in his body. But I wouldn't expect you to understand anybody like that. You with your theme park, multi-level, homogenize the world, mochaccino land. You've deluded yourself into thinking that you're some sort of benefactor bringing books to the masses. But no one will ever remember you, Joe Fox. And maybe no one will remember me either, but plenty of people remember my mother. And they think she was fine, and they think her store was something special. You are nothing but a suit. Thank you for abiding the longer sermon clip this time. One of the reasons I like that uh, scene and I think appreciate the complexity of it is because you might find much of the critique that Kathleen Kelly offers in her insult because some of what she says is true, but so is the remorse that follows it because that's the power of words. You can take life or you can kill it. It's a story about this rabbi who has a friend, a parishioner who is prone to gossip and slander. The rabbi and the slander have a mutual friend whom slander was speaking of, telling about a true story, nonetheless one that was hurtful and caught up with friend and, and damaged him. And the slanderer was feeling broken about it, so he went and saw his rabbi. 
And as Rabbi explained, well, uh, slander is it's an attempt of murder on somebody's reputation. And so the broken gossiper asked what he could do. And the rabbi said, well, go get a feather pillow from your house. So he thought the request was odd, but he went and did that. He came back. And then when he got there, the rabbi said, now cut the pillow open. And the man did. And then he said, shake it out. And he shook and the feathers blew away in the wind. And after about 10 minutes, the rabbi said, okay, now go get all the feathers and put them back in the pillow. And the man said, I can't, that's impossible. And the rabbi said, so too it is with the words that come out of our mouths. Ever accidentally CC somebody on an email that wasn't supposed to be included? Or reply all to a group that you weren't supposed to? Ever not properly hang up a telephone after you left a message and someone heard some words you didn't intend for them to hear? If you have, you know the power of words to maim, to take life. But words can give life. We participate in the tradition, the holy tradition of Devar of creating, of speaking new life, of giving life. In her book, The Whisper Test, Marianne Bird tells a story about encountering Jesus and a teacher. Marianne was born with multiple birth defects. She was deaf in one ear. She was self-described as having a crooked nose, lopsided feet, and she had a cleft palate. Marianne explains that she suffered a great deal of emotional pain as a child, and um, her peers would ask her, what happened to her lip, and she was so embarrassed she would lie and say things like, I cut it on a piece of glass. One of the most embarrassing days for her annually was the the hearing test that elementary students had to participate in because she was afraid to expose yet another problem, that she had a bad ear. And so to avoid the embarrassment of defeat, Marianne would cheat. She would cup her good ear and, and try and listen to what the teacher would whisper, and the teacher would whisper things like, the sky is blue or you have new shoes. Well, one year, Marianne recalled the, the dreaded day showed up, and it was when she had Miss Leonard for a teacher, and she explains that Miss Leonard is the kind of teacher that every child wants. They would uh, jockey to, to get her attention, to be noticed by her. They all wanted to be Miss Leonard's pet. And so the day of the, the whispering test occurs, and um, it's, it's Marianne's turn, and um, she went up there, and sure enough, she, she cheated. She covered her good ear with her, her hand to listen. And here I'm going to quote her. She says, I waited for those words which God must have put into her mouth, those seven words that changed my life. Miss Leonard did not say the sky is blue or you have new shoes. She whispered, I wish you were my little girl. Uh, speaking of teachers, I am, I suspect we all are acutely aware in this pandemic, not just of how hard their job is, but how much we appreciate them how they make our own vocational lives possible, how their investment in our children is not just life-giving for our children, but it's, it's life-giving for us. One of the many hats teachers wear is that they negotiate their curriculums between things that kids need to learn to pass standardized tests and the fascinating things that made teachers want to teach in the first place. And then they also have to shepherd hearts of children who don't do well on these sterile tests with their sterile testing methods. When my now senior niece in high school was a fifth grader, uh, she got a a letter sent home with her from her teacher, Miss Pease. I'd like to read it for you this morning. My fabulous fifth graders, this past month you took the Minnesota Comprehensive Assessment in reading and math. I know how hard you have worked, but there's something else you must know. The MCA does not assess all of what makes you special and unique. 
The test makers do not know you the same way I do, and certainly not the way your friends and family do. They do not know that some of you are excellent at basketball, hockey, snowboarding, or soccer. They do not know that some of you create your own comics and stories or have a natural talent for dancing or music. They do not know that you're a good friend, you take care of your little brothers and sisters, and are somebody's summer at lunch and recess. They do not know of your love for animals, technology, leadership, and learning. They do not know your sense of humor, your kind heart, or your respect towards everyone around you. They do not know you are respectful, responsible future leaders of our world. The scores of the MCA will tell you something, but they will not tell you everything. There are many ways of being smart. You are smart. You are amazing. You are wonder, a wonder, devar, devar, devar. So while you are caught up in all the craziness of testing, remember that you are, there is no test that can measure just how amazing you are and all the awesome things that make you you. You're very lucky, teacher, Mrs. Pease. I will pray. We'll sing another song. We'll do our announcements. And then you will go back out into the world with power to take life or to give it. You will participate in the tradition of uttering things that can save lives or destroy them. You are a Devar speaker. So UBC, may we be those who give life with what we say. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the ability to speak, to participate in the creative act to mimic you, and we're grateful for the different ways we can speak with our hands and our, our nonverbals as well as our speech. We thank you for this gift, but God, we confess it's like dynamite. It's like this explosive power we have, and with, as with all beautiful things, we, we run uh, the risk of, of screwing it up. So Holy Spirit, help us tame our tongues. Help us be participants in giving life. Help us be participants in the great tradition of speaking the var into the world. We pray these things with hope because we trust that the Spirit maps us on these trajectories and we trust you to work this out in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. At the conclusion of the preaching moment in worship, we like to take time and sit in silence and listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit together. Perhaps the Spirit will correct something I have said incorrectly or perhaps the Spirit will minister something new. So let's listen together. <laughs>